Let's embark on an exciting new journey. Get inspired to explore the shallows and the depths with her ocean story. Mahalo for listening from one ocean lover to another. I'm your host, Jennifer Marie, and I'm ready to have some fun on this party wave together. Aloha, ocean lovers. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 10. I'm in the double digits. <laughs> I made a huge deal when my son turned 10 last year, so I want to make a big deal for episode number 10 and making it this far. I'm wholeheartedly grateful if you're able to leave a review after listening to this interview that I had so much fun doing with one of the first women to inspire me to dive with sharks and learn more about them. Christina Zanato is very active in the diving community passionate about sharks and cave diving, cave exploration, and a member of the Women Divers Hall of Fame, the Explorers Club, the Ocean Artist Society, and a recipient of the Platinum Pro 5000. Her resume is beyond impressive. And on her social media and website, you can learn of the wonderful impacts she has had and so much more than just the diving community as a whole. I was really curious to learn in my interview, where did it all start? How did she begin? And how she has gotten to where she is today? how her ocean story can inspire me and anyone listening to this episode. In the podcast description, I have her website and social media information. Feel free to check that out after you listen and leave a heartfelt review. So let's get started. Where and when did your love for the ocean and sharks begin? I think it started in my mother's womb. My mom really? said, no. yes, jokingly, but my mom said when I was born, um, to, and I was a fussy, but the best thing that she could do is to draw a bath and put me in the water. And she would <laughs> relax me and I would relax. And then after the bath, I would immediately go to sleep and I'm talking about infant. <laughs> and, uh, I would say in later time was my family is from the ocean. Both my dad and my mom were ocean lovers. My father was ex military. They always took me to the ocean to free dive, snorkel. I always had my set of fins and masks. So I think it comes from being immersed into the ocean culture since I was a baby. And were they also a fan of sharks and they loved like all the marine life or? Yes, we were, so we were, we are a Mediterranean family. Uh, the relationship obviously with the fish at the time was of love, but also of uh, uh, consumption. But interestingly enough, at the time, of consumption, it required a lot of knowledge. Very much, I relay back to those days. I remember my mom's uncle. Um, he took people around with a sailboat to visit the Mediterranean, and they went fishing a little bit. But he had a complete knowledge of seasons, of when to do it, or how to do it. It was very conservative. So there was this mix of we are of the ocean. We belong to the ocean. Sometimes we take from the ocean. And I think it really uh, built me into the person I am now. Uh, now, fast forward you know, 50 years, I don't consume fish anymore for uh, many different reasons. But it's, uh, it is something that taught me quite a lot of lessons. And it was just basically it's a full immersion into this, this culture that then I brought, I brought with me. That sounds beautiful. And how did you know you wanted to work and just make a career out of it? Like, what was that life changing? So, point? I had a childhood dream of wanting to become an underwater scuba ranger, like a forest ranger, but underwater. <laughs> and my idea, and I'm talking about seven or eight years old, was I will go around the oceans of the world. And I didn't even know that scuba diving, recreational scuba diving existed. 
and I will tell people what to do, what not to do. So imagine the Mediterranean culture, then we're in Africa, there is a fishing culture there. And my thought was, well, I'm going to be swimming around and scuba diving around telling people, okay, no, you cannot take that. Yeah, you can take that. No, this area <laughs> is reserved, literally like a forest with mushrooms and collecting wood and the same concept. That's awesome. And then my idea was I would have sharks for friends. And I was never afraid of sharks. And that I have to really thank my family. My father always told me, there are no monsters in the sea, only the ones you make up in your head. I was born in 1971. I am literally a Jaws child. But for me, Jaws, and it's one of the biggest advocacy that I do, is it's a movie. It's a work of fiction. It's also nearly 50 years old. Let's put it to rest. Yes. But when it came out, it was frightening for a lot of people. And I remember watching it and my father was just like oh yeah look it's fake oh that's fake oh this animal would never do this and so i grew up with this concept that anything we fabricate into our heads is the worst that instead of what's out there and that applies to everything in life sometimes we're fearful of taking a leap doing a career change uh, yes. leaving something somewhere, sometimes leaving someone that I'm just suggesting to do. And we sit there and in our heads, we create these insane scenarios of how bad it's going to go, how dangerous it's going to be. And then maybe we leave or maybe uh, life gives a little push. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as we fall and we land, all of a sudden we go, it's not as scary as I thought it would be. Yeah, that was not that as bad. bad. Mm -hmm. And and I think that goes from the sharks, which is my advocacy, but it really transfers into life. There's no monsters in this world, only in the ones we make up in our heads. Oh yes. And we definitely have definitely a lot of those monsters. It's so much we're easier really to go. That. It's easier to look at the monsters, to look at the negative. That's unfortunately it's just part of the culture. You know, it's yes. It's the first look thing we come news. to. Yeah, Look the news, news, exactly. And, and, and I think that is part of the problem with the sharks. If we, people become fixated with one concept about the sharks. And no matter how many thousands of hours I've spent, and many people like me have spent in the water with sharks, no matter how many millions of people go diving with sharks, to show positive interaction with sharks, you have that one negative event, which... It is unfortunate for the person that is involved. I totally understand, and I really feel for when that happens. But in the big scheme of things, it's absolutely nothing. Honestly, nothing. I mean, we die of so many different things, and dying of a shark bite is a, such a real occurrence, but it's given so much advertising. Yes. Not nearly as much as, you know, what we put in our bodies sometimes, you know, what just driving around, you know, it's, I, it's a, it's a high risk watching, in and of its, own, of its own. I was reading this, this uh, research that had been done, I can't remember which university, but they had some candidates and they said, what are the four leading cause of death in the United States within a certain region? And they put um, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, drowning, and asthma. And most people answered tornado and earthquakes followed by drowning and then asthma. 
And actually, it's the way around, the other way around. There's about 6,000 children that die of asthma attacks in the United States alone every year. Yeah. No, I totally think asthma is such a sickness that we have sprays, we have medications, we have way to detect it. 6,000. But the perception is earthquakes and tornadoes. Yeah. Because in the news, those are given so much attention. But imagine if every day the news has said, today, 23 kids died of asthma. Today, 56 kids died of asthma. And they continued to produce those numbers, then we will have a better understanding. Mm-hmm. A better understanding of asthma, how to you know, prevent it, what the cause of treatment. I think but yeah. it's very difficult for the human brain to consider numbers. So, so when I advocate for sharks and I say sharks don't eat humans, sharks accidentally bite humans, I usually are reproached by the USS Indianapolis which is like, thank you very much for using a 76-years-old example to prove my point, (laughs) right? It happened, and there's so many circumstances around the USS Indianapolis, which I can discuss, but this is a whole ship that sunk in the middle of the ocean. So you have the canteen, you have the restaurants, you have the, unfortunately, the body parts of those soldiers are blown up, because if you don't, if you remember the USS Indianapolis was actually bombed, you have people that are drowning. There are people that are half um, dismembered. They're hanging on for dear life. So sharks are being told by nature, and especially those species of sharks in the middle of the ocean, say, hey, there's a huge mess here. You need to clean it up. And eventually they show up, right? But they're not directly going for the live human beings. There's so much that is yeah. happening around the USS Indianapolis. Or they bring up the recent bites that we had in the Red Sea or something like that. And again, I'm trying to explain there's millions of people that go in the water every day with sharks. Yep. There's, I think about Florida or the Bahamas alone. We have over 40, we share between Florida and the Bahamas, 40 different species of sharks. Five or six of them are what are considered potentially dangerous to humans because of their size. The tigers, the bulls, uh, the oceanic white tip, the great hammerhead, just even in size, Caribbean reef sharks. We have millions of people that go in the water. The Bahamas have a record of about six to eight million people a year going swimming, snorkeling, scuba diving, doing any water activities in our waters. Four bites in the last four years. Wow. That's insane. And that is where I think we need to bring our brain down to. Meanwhile, on this island alone, last year we had over 60 deaths due to car crashes, which is, for being a small island, is not much. You probably in NASA where you've been (laughs) much higher. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, it's exactly what I tell people. Like the amount of sharks that are being killed versus the what them killing us is is just outrageous. That is zero point zero 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 something percent. Mm-hmm. It is estimated. Now the numbers might be a little bit inflated, but it is estimated we kill between sixty and eighty million sharks per year. Yeah, and that might just be documented. You know, they don't document. There's correct. There's some there's that are parts of not the world that we documented document. where they don't. And um, so then why, 
Why specifically the Bahamas? Why did you choose the reef sharks and nurse sharks versus other sharks that are out there, like the tiger sharks and great hammerheads? And Well, the Bahamas choose me in a way, I think. I wanted to learn how to scuba dive and I went to a travel agency. We were talking about 1994. Internet didn't exist. So I went into the travel agency. I said, I want to become a scuba diver. And I had five destinations in my list. And none of them, for one reason or the other, was available. They okay. actually, no, 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 no. I said, okay, where can I go? And I said, oh, we have a place in the Bahamas, which at the time was a very unknown looking destination for diving. It was more a honeymoon destination. Considering I was based in Italy, it was very much a honeymoon expensive destination. So they had the special things. I come to the Bahamas. I'm like, sure, whatever. I just want to learn how to scuba dive and go scuba diving. My first open water checkout dive, I plop in the middle of a shiver of Caribbean race sharks. And so I surface and I'm like, you have sharks here? And they're like, they look at me like, yes, of course we have sharks, you, you dummy. And I'm just like, they're here. <laughs> so in a twist of events, I speak five different languages. The hotel that I was staying at was looking for someone to work at the front desk, which is, oh, wow, my background and training. And I was uh, planning to become a hotel director. And they said, we need someone to work at the front desk that speaks the different languages to be a liaison between the Italian, the French, German, and English. Wow. I was 22. I did an interview and they said, when can you come back? And I said, well, I have a week more vacation and then I need to go home and sort out a couple of things, you know, job, boyfriend, car, you know, <laughs> I'll be back in two weeks. And uh, my plan was to do one year get diving out of my system, you know, work and just enjoy what I was basically had dreamt of my entire life. And I'm still working on the getting the diving out of my system. But <laughs> <laughs> so as I was here, I encountered people that were very much into diving, but also a gentleman called Ben Rose. He's no longer with us, but he was actually um, working already with Caribbean researchers. And I think it was the first kind of interactive dives that people did with sharks. Back then, when I started working with Caribbean reef sharks, uh, it was considered absolutely impossible to be able to work with tigers or great hammerheads. You're looking at 30 years ago already. Okay. So I started working with Ben, and then within a couple of years, Ben retired, and he was just like, you're really good with the sharks. You really have something with the sharks. And he kind of like left me with, nurturing the program there's a shark dive the shark interactive dive the shark course the handling course which was at its infancy back then we did five days course and it was like very peculiar and between that and then falling in love with the caves that we have here in the bahamas i kind of found my place i love the island i love the life above the water i love the people above the water i love what this brought me, kind of brought me a little bit of a remembrance of my childhood in Africa. The climate, the lifestyle, the easiness of the people. And all of a sudden, I felt at home both above and below the water. That's beautiful. And one, one year turning to now 30. That's awesome. Though. I mean, if it's if it works, if you love it, it has, you know, all your passions, the caves, the sharks, why change it? You know, it's 
And the sharks, you know, love being around you too. You have that, I was reading about, you know, your gentle touch with them and removing the hooks. Is that something that started off right away or that came over with time or like anything? I tell people what I have with the sharks is a relationship. And so if you go on a speed date, you know, those, I, I heard just those things where you talk for two minutes and then you switch. You yeah. can't come out of this, the speed date and go, oh, I'm in a relationship with Jennifer now. It's, yeah. I met Jennifer, I had a speed date, but obviously I will have to foster this. So relationship is built over time. And what I have with these sharks is a relationship. So through the relationship comes the trust, understanding, interpretation of each other's behavior, because obviously we're very different creatures. And that's what I found myself doing is I tried to interpret First the Caribbean and now tigers and hammerheads and in general sharks for people and say, look, you're looking at it from a human point of view. You have to look at it a little bit from a shark point of view. And then with the relationship comes love. And with love, when you love someone, you want their best. And so Mm -hmm. the hook removal came literally from wanting to make this little small shiver of Caribbean sharks feel better. When I started seeing them showing up with hooks in the beginning, I couldn't really do much. I was not experienced. But I watched them diving into the sand, trying to dislodge the hook, or like they kept twitching the fin if the line was touching. They had infections from the line rubbing them. And so I removed the hook with the same concept you remove a thorn out of your dog's paw. From the yeah. same way, if you have a child that comes up with the little splinters in their fingers, you do your best to remove it out of the little splinter. What I didn't realize is the message that it would give. Immediately, I didn't realize. I'd be like, oh, evil thing, and throw away the hook. And then people start saying, I never thought sharks could be injured. I never thought sharks could have actually infections. I never thought this would bother them. And so the hooks and this shiver of sharks became the ambassadors, the speaking individuals for all the sharks out there. And then sharks started becoming creatures, thinking, living, breathing, feeling creatures. And people start associating and understanding there's, they're not monsters. Mindless yeah. killing machines and all of that. And so that's how it started. It started out of an act of love for the individuals. And then became beautiful. a symbol for all the other sharks out there. I have messages from people saying, oh, we used to go out and catch and release the sharks for fun after fall. And I never, I never, if you watch my post, I never attack anyone. All I'm doing is removing hooks. Exactly. It's and that's up to the ones following and reading. Mm-hmm. And doing their own research and to do their own research, go on their own journey. Exactly. Because when they're ready, they'll listen and they'll want to learn. Correct. You can't, you know, enforce it. You can't no. make someone, you know, think a All different I'm way or have a different the consequences perspective. Of just... a hook inside a shark's mouth. Exactly. Or the consequences of pulling on a shark's mouth. This is what I'm mm-hmm. showing. Then it's up to you to decide. Well, I'm fishing to sustain myself, by all means. I'm the first one. I will not interfere with that. I'm trying to be very moderate as a person. I have my own food choices. I try not to impose my own food choices on people. People have to get their 
through their own journey, through their own understanding. And I do believe that the more you yell at someone, the more you try to force something on someone, the more they will resist. Exactly. Like teenage kids. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're just like teenage kids. I started removing the hooks. And like I said, I had people sending me messages that says, oh, we don't do this anymore. We decided not to do this. That's awesome. That must be very rewarding. It's very rewarding. And people slowly change also. Like people say, oh, uh, I want to help. How can I help? And I tell them, it's not about removing the hooks from the sharks, which is could be dangerous. I mean, you're you know, trying to remove something out of an animal with razor sharp teeth. They're still alive. They're moving. So you need to have a lot of time with them before you're trying to do that. But here's the other things you can do. You can look into your diet, for example, and decide how to change a little bit your consumption. What affects, you know, your choice? How does it affect the oceans? Your choice, how does it affect agriculture? Your choice, how does it affect the water table, for example? Try to think about less plastic. Plastic in general, reducing plastic helps everyone and anyone. Whatever you close to the ocean or not close to the ocean. So even if you think, I want to help sharks, it's like you can start with looking into what kind of detergents you use. Yes, Change exactly. that, less chemicals mm-hmm. into the water. And don't do everything at once. You know, we just had New Year's Eve and New Year's. I said, do not have, you know, New Year's Eve resolutions. I'm going to drastically change everything. You can't. Yeah, One no, little just step baby at steps. time here and there and mm-hmm. make it part of your routine. And yes. then once you embrace that and that becomes, oh, it's easy, then you do the next one and then the next one and then the next one. And, and I think that's how I started. I, like I said, I grew up uh, eating fish. I, I, am, I was on the coast of Africa. There was a fresh fish. The guy we went to, the guy said, we need this. He will go out, fish that and return only what we ate. I come from the Mediterranean. But as I became more and more involved, I realized, oh, wow, this fish is a risk. Oh, this fish, to be fished, kills us so many more. It's called bycatch. And this one, oh, this is so cute. Oh, my goodness, that's so adorable. And so slowly I started saying no to this and no to that and no and no. And the more I researched it, so it was like a gradual steps. And sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and run five miles a day starting your day. And it's just like. Why don't you just try you know, twenty minutes? Exactly, those gradual baby steps are the ones that lead to more long-lasting changes. Yes, you know? and don't worry about the people yelling at you saying you have to have all those drastic changes. I mean, there are people that work well with drastic changes, but for me, is if you ask me, how can I help? Is slowly start understanding how our behavior as humans is affecting the environment. Yes, and how can you change that? And it goes in so many different directions. For example, I, I do travel quite a lot. Also, my family is in Italy. So from the Bahamas to Italy, if you look at the airplane carbon footprint, it's a huge one. So one of our choices, my husband and I, when we are through the airports and we need to eat, we always look for the restaurants where we see people using fork knives and a proper plate. We never buy plastic takeout meals. Mm-hmm. Is it small? Yes, of course it's small. The world is living and thriving on plastic, but is it something that I can do? Then I do it. And I think that is one of the other concepts I work with, which is a concept of uh, the star, the star uh, fish, the sea star store. I call it a starfish store, but it's a sea star. The, and it's the old man that is walking the beach 
and sees the young man doing something and says, what are you doing? He says, oh, there's a huge storm and these uh, sea stars have been all stranded. I'm just putting them back in the water to help them. And the old man goes, look, there's thousands and thousands of these sea stars. There's miles and miles of this beach alone. And never mind, there's more beaches. You will never make a difference. And the kid has a sea star in his hands and looks at it or puts it in the water and says, well, I made a difference for that one. Yes. And I think in our society, unfortunately, sometimes we may believe, you know, like, well, why try to change something? Everyone else is doing this. And it's like, it's true. No, yeah. I read one of your quotes on your website saying one small action is better than no big action. Big action. And I used to think, oh, I'm just one person. I'm one girl. I'm not going to make a difference. You know, my podcast is cannot change anything. It won't, you know, it's not going to reach anybody. But thinking that way is not going to help me. It's not going to help anyone else either. You know, it's it's just that negative thought process that we tell ourselves that we're kind of ingrained in. Yes, and especially as women. Changing that, you know, over time, it 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 takes time. It's baby steps. It's it's a little. It takes time. Your podcast might only have, I don't know, but however, and I didn't even look at your numbers. I was like, sure, let's do the podcast. If my message can reach one more person that I had no zero opportunities to reach, so Jennifer becomes my bridge to that one person. That person might then share that with 10 more people. And I would have never been able to link into that one person would have not been for you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You never know if even if it's just one person that it affects. It's it's worth it. That it's is awesome. a starfish. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Thank you, thank so you. Don't worry about the numbers. It's just that that will come. I remember I was one of the first interviewees for a podcast in the UK that now is huge. And one of the things I did is was just recommend them some people to reach out to to talk to. And I was one of the first that said sure. They're like, oh, but we have no numbers. I said it's okay. I said you're in the UK. I'll just to you and see where the message goes. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And how did you go into caves and why take the risk of discovering? I noticed you discover a lot of new caves, new cave systems, um, explore ones that have never been explored before. Caves have always kind of you know made me a little nervous. Um, I'd love to do an introductory course one day, but I'm having fun with sharks and everything else and surfing, sailing. But uh, <laughs> it's too many expensive hobbies, too. <laughs> but, so uh, you can actually do cavern with the recreational dive gear. There is a specific, uh, first of a tour, you can just do a cavern tour without even having to have a certification with a certified, like a cave diving instructor. And you do a cavern tour. Uh, yeah, I did, I did in one Mexico. in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. the cenotes, I did that. So that like gives you an day. idea what cave diving is. And you can do that in rec- you know, cave diving, which, yes, it's a huge gear investment. Ben Rose is uh, still the culprit. Um, <laughs> ben was giving uh, Ben's Cavern tour. Uh, he was the first one to dive Ben's Cavern back in the 60s, 1969. And uh, he was offering Ben's Cavern tours. Um, I said, sure, I'm coming. It was my 11th ever log dive. And I went cavern diving with him. It was like not a couple of people in the tour. And I remember the, the water was crystal clear. It was just like, and he was floating there waiting for us to do our weight adjustments. And remember, it was my 11th dive. So I'm like, I, I had too much weight on. And I said, you descend. 
into this flat rock in 15 feet of water. You do your weight adjustment. I want you to remove as much weight just so that when you have two puffs of air in your BCD, inhale, exhale, you kind of like move, right? So a little bit of air. And I'm sitting there and I'm working on this, obviously, Levith dive. And he is just <laughs> like literally, I don't know, Alibaba, <laughs> just sitting there in midwater. And I look up and I remember thinking, oh, wow, I want to be like you. And then we went on this cavern tour. And I don't think there's a more magical world than caves. Uh, the crystals dripping off the walls, the color of the water, the transition between fresh and salt, the history that is literally carved into the walls. I fell in love with it on my 11th dive. It would take another year and a half after that to then me traveling to Florida to get my cave diving certificate. I find caves literally magical and beautiful i i do imagine when i go inside them to be in one of those ancient libraries and open one of those big books like with (laughs) dust coming out and when you open the book it has a geological history of our planet yes and so as i start cave diving i fell in love with the place i start learning more about them i get involved with geology hydrology understanding all these things history a lot of history in the caves, both of our planet, but also of us and these islands, for example. And like sharks, I realized they were affected by a lot of um, misconceptions, preconceived notions. You know, people are like, when I say cave divers, I don't want to go in tight places. Like you crazy, I said, we're going places that have names like Wrigley Field and Fengorn Forest and the big white room and Crystal Palace. Mm. Yeah. And we don't remove the gear. We adapt the gear, but we, you know, people imagine always removing the gear. And I'm like, no, no, no. We try <laughs> not to do that because it's extremely dangerous to do that yes. kind of stuff. We create gear that is easy, removable, but is designed to be misplaced and replaced, not something that actually is attached to your body. And then I realized with time how important caves are for our well being for our health, for the survival of the oceans, especially here in the Bahamas, but even Florida, how what we do on the surface goes underground and travels through the caves and then ends up somewhere else, like a conveyor belt, like a circulatory system of this planet. And and it's the same thing, you know, what you put through your mouth, it doesn't just stay here. It goes into your stomach, into your intestine, the fats, uh, causes some consequences. You know, if you eat a donut, the sugar causes another consequences. And so what we do to the surface of the planet goes through, goes into the caves and then goes somewhere else. And so I became fascinated with discover where does it go and what does it do and how can we protect this? And it came, became like, let's discover where these places are because they're literally out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, definitely. Some people see the entrance and they're like, oh, the entrance is protected. And I'm like, yeah, the cave goes 6,000 feet that way and 30,000 feet this way. Wow. So everything around that needs to be protected because otherwise somewhere, somehow it will make it through the brain. I find caves very, I don't think caves are a lot of people say they are dangerous. Don't get me wrong. But the people that go cave diving are actually not thrill seekers. We're usually very much 
most of my students and people that I cave dive with are engineers. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you have to doctors. be that. They're very specific, very precise, Detail. very calm, very analytical oriented because it takes time to prepare. Yes, it takes time to do the dive, and it takes a calm mind to react. So there's a lot of discipline that goes into cave diving. Yes, a lot of discipline. I completely agree. That's it's not. Sometimes thrill seekers are more associated with impulse and Correct. and adrenaline, and there is a little bit of that, you know. But really, like you say, you have to remain calm throughout. Yes. The entire situation, so you can think things through, and well, you need adrenaline safe to, and- to do an exam, right? So you have a little bit of adrenaline, which is the level that gives you that alertness, that focus. But you don't want to have too much adrenaline that then goes into hyperventilation and panic. Exactly. So in order to have the focus adrenaline, you have to have the basic understanding and knowledge. Once you have that, then you can go in with the precise understanding of what's happening. And, and the first thing that happens in, in cave diving, in diving, in, in anything, is uh, something really big happens is stop, breathe, think, act. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. At a certain point, the stop, breathe, the think, act could be three seconds and you have a reaction. I, calls it, I call them trained instincts. <laughs> and what would you say... Like if somebody wanted to ask you, you know, why protect caves? Like what's, like why, like what's the most affected part of it that harms us, I guess, or, or that you can, or that you see from. Okay. In case of Florida and the Bahamas, but also many other places in the world, uh, caves are freshwater reservoirs fresh drinking water reservoirs. I do believe the wars will be fought in the future over fresh drinking water, clean water. There's billions of two billion people in the world already that have zero access to uh, hygienic and drinkable water. And I do believe we will fight wars over that. So once you affect a fresh water reservoir is like an animal. It goes extinct. It doesn't come back. Okay. In order to come back, we'll have to remove all the sources of the pollutions and try to repristinate, which is impossible. So that is one. It affects us because they are bringing us a fresh drinking water. But furthermore, also they transfer chemicals, nutrients, the negative, it's the chemicals, the positive nutrients between different ecosystems. So they're liaison between the forest, for example, in the Bahamas and the mangroves. The caves come from the land, go underneath the ground, comes out in the mangroves. In the mangroves, we have corals, we have sharks, we have fish, we have nursery grounds. You pollute here, goes down, comes over here, goes in the mangroves, pollutes your, your ocean. And all of a sudden pollutes. And again, there are people that depend on fish, but yeah, also because on, on the coastal area, depend on a healthy environment. If all of a sudden somebody's throwing dangerous chemicals on land that goes in the cave and comes out on the coastline, the people on the coastline will be affected. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so caves are part of this vast water circulatory ecosystems. And as far as I understand, war, uh, life on this planet depends on the circulation of the healthy water. Yes. Snow, rain, um, rivers, lakes, ocean, caves. And so they're very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I wanted to just bring a little bit, you know, to light yeah. on that. And I mean, in, in a smaller the ecosystem, like the Bahamian archipelago, right, where tiny little balls, each island is a tiny little ecosystem in a big schemes of world, it becomes even more important 
New Providence, Nassau, no longer has fresh drinking water. They have to import it from a different island in the Bahamas. Overpopulation, uh, mismanagement of the land, the water that comes out of your tub is of the tub is no longer drinking. Oh wow. That's so in there's what part of the Bahamas you said? Uh New Providence, Nassau, where okay. the capital is. Okay. Wow. Overpopulations, mismanagement. The the water table went belly up many, many years back. Okay. That's and, crazy. And, and that is a part, right? All of a sudden is uh, imagine you're on an island. In the middle of the ocean, you have no rivers, no lakes. You have no rivers, no lakes, no glaciers, no snow. But in the Bahamas, you open your tap and there's fresh drinking water coming out of the tap. Florida is the same. No, there's, well, they have rivers. But in general, the Bahamas have no fresh drinking water visible to the eye in any shape or form besides rain anywhere. Yeah, and yet we have fresh drinking water. Yeah, no, I definitely. Um, no, thank you for you touching. You as a nurse understand the concept mm-hmm. of fresh, clean water, right? Yeah, no, of course, it's it's super important, and that's why I wanted to ask about the caves and why yes. you go work so hard to protect them. And and has you have have you ever had any experiences that were scary in a cave that you like any mistakes that were made or that you learned from or that you want to bring to light or share or something that just mistakes yeah i've done a few mistakes um so the first thing i need to do is distinguish between the regular cave diving so you're a cave diver you hire someone you follow a line you go to mexico you train you follow certain routes and a cave explorer a cave explorer goes to somewhere where no one has ever been before and goes okay i'm gonna attempt to go this way or i'm gonna attempt to go that way most of my mistakes have been during exploration. Um, misjudgment of a size of something that I went in and maybe I became slightly stuck or misjudgment onto uh, the direction or anything like that. Or sometimes here I've done a misjudgment into the integrity of the tunnel. As a regular cave diver, um, mistakes were minimal. We're, we're trained is to constantly this i tell i tell people we're kind of like a bat in a cave dive you know keep sending out messages but instead of sending them out there and receiving a feedback is we constantly check ourselves how am i breathing how is my heart rate what am i feeling where am i uh how is my and we how is my gauge how is my uh, gas how is this and eventually you're thinking what well, my goodness do you even enjoy the cave dive it becomes so natural that you keep doing that and it's check 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 Check, 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 check. Did you check, 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 check? And as you do that, it allows you to really be in a better position in a cave. Okay. And yeah. then comes with maturity, which is sometimes is I need to turn around now. I need to go out now. And and it's okay to go out now. That's the other one. There's no big ego. There's no goal. There's no, oh, you called the dive before we were supposed to. None of that. Exactly. So, Scary. And I appreciate that a lot about cave divers. I realize like there's nothing, like you say, no ego is involved. It's safety first. You safety know. first. And that's what's most important. Um, scary. If I describe them to you, they are scary. In the moment they happen to me is, is really funny. Some, when something escalates into the dive, my breathing and heart rate goes up. It's just like, have I had some interesting situations? Absolutely. 
the way I deal with them is what I call is, like I said, trained instincts. So if I were to listen to my animal human instincts, I would kill myself within seconds. But because of the time and the repetition and the progressive, uh, and again, you know, when you go cave diving, the first time I remember I did, you know, 500 feet inside the cave, I was like, ooh, 500 feet. And then you do 600, and then you do 1,000. It's like, I'm 1,000 feet inside a cave. And that is what helps you because you build enough skills to deal with what happens within a certain distance. Now doing six, seven, eight thousand feet inside a cave, it's part of our routine. Wow. But we're looking at 20 years later or five, six years later. Yeah. You're not doing and, that like a dive 11 or 12. Yeah. <laughs> correct. And so to me is a trained instinct, meaning I've first done the training and then the repetition of that training to the point that my response is the correct one. Exactly. But it's not the natural one. It becomes natural through repetition. I'm trying to think, okay, if you're, you're a certified scuba diver, if you're low on air or your regulator malfunctions, you're taught to go to your buddy. Mm -hmm. right? So my idea is problem, try to fix it, doesn't fix it, buddy. Okay? Never in my brain is surface. We know the attempt to go to the surface, maybe without the regulator holding your breath, is could be lethal. But the natural instinct of a human is, I don't have any air. Air! And they'll shoot up to the surface. So what we do through the open water training and the advanced training and the rescue training is to probably with the reg, try to fix it. Thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, doesn't fix, buddy. That is a trained instinct. Yes. Which you now as a certified diver take for granted. Oh, wh what do you do if you have a problem with your gas? Oh, I go to my buddy. Say, well, that's not natural. <laughs> Let me yeah. swim on the water to the next person, available person. But it becomes natural and it has to become natural. And that's the same with cave diving. We just put in a little bit more time into training to make sure that it's really natural down there. Yes, at a exactly, higher level. Yeah. That's why a cave diving course is much longer than any open water advance or rescue course. Yeah, no, I, when I've read it, when I've looked into it, I see, you know, some of them are a week long, maybe even two weeks, you know, and it's, it's only for your own good, for your own, for if your you own do safety. Zero to hero, meaning gear configuration, all the gas that is needed, the requirements, plus all the, the apprentice to full cave, you're looking at nearly three weeks of training. Wow. Yeah. During which I usually recommend to take a couple of days off. So it's like put a month in. And that's what uh, Kevin did when he first contacted me to do his cave classes. He put in a month. Wow. That's crazy. I would love to do that one day. I think it'd be cool to do one day. I don't, I'm not ready for that now, though. <laughs> Maybe later Try on. Try with a cavern. But yeah, baby steps, like you said. Like we've we said, baby steps. And, and then last question. Just to kind of finish this off, to kind of inspire anybody who, who wants to make a difference or get involved, what would you recommend like the best course of action is for somebody who wants to work as a cave diver or shark diver or make diving their profession as you think is that's the first step that they need to do, get sh certified, or is it better to go to school and study marine biology or the ecosystems or what is like your favorite kind of like course of action? 
Well, I don't have a favorite. And I, my course of action was so weird, right? I come from humanistic studies, art, literature, languages, geography, traveling, organizing travels for the people. But those languages allow me to actually enter this world here. So I think is what makes people uh, feel the most attracted to. Some people first uh, have their master's and their PhD in geology or hydrology or marine biology, and then uh, have diving as a side part. If they want to be full professional divers, then I would say go for the full professional diving, but take your time. And the other one I, I usually recommend is, that's my usual remark, go diving, go experience this, go explore that. And if somebody gives you an opportunity and says, hey, do you want to come here and I don't know. You're very interested in cave diving. Somebody says, you want to count corals. You're like, count corals? I want to be a cave diver. I was like, go and count corals. It's going to teach you something about buoyancy. It's going to teach you something about awareness. And it's going to give you a skill. And then eventually one day there might be something that connects the dots. Um, so for me is follow your heart. And I'm not saying this as a cliche, cheesy little thing. It knows the way. Once you find what really makes you passionate, studying for it, it's nothing. I come from humanistic studies and languages. I've never done math or physics. The moment I discovered that physics was my key to cave diving, gas mixing, understanding all that stuff, not only I did physics, but I had to do physics in Imperial. I am the queen of physics. I've been told that I can teach physics really, really well. And <laughs> I had to work so hard for it. But for me, it was absolute obsession that I master physics to become a cave diver. So if someone in high school said, you must study physics, I'd be like, or in college, I'd be like, but I want to learn languages. The moment I had that obsession with cave diving, physics became part of that obsession. So find what really triggers your heart and then find a way to get to it. And then whatever they tell you you need to do becomes a passion. Yeah, listen to your mentors, listen to their advice, listen to the pros, to people that you look up to, what you want to emulate. Yes, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope one day we can maybe repeat this again. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Mahalo for listening to episode number 10 of Her Ocean Story. If you feel inspired to start cave diving or shark diving, please let me know or reach out to Christina. If you know of anyone else who would love to be on Her Ocean Story podcast, please send me an email at heroceanstory at gmail.com. A review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify really helps with Her Ocean Story keep growing and reaching more people. And if you have a friend who would love this episode, please share it with them. Aloha and have a great time on or near the water today.